0: Me, 1 Kings 17, starting with verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to this gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering six. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do you as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Becca. Our second scripture comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many. There were many widows in Israel in the time, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. A great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series right now on the life of Elijah. I could almost call it the miracles that God performed through Elijah. We started this a couple weeks ago. He is one of the most prolific prophets of the Old Testament. If for no other reason than like Enoch, he did not see death. He was taken up before his body would die. I mentioned before, um, and I'm mentioning now that I will not be preaching the most memorable miracle of Elijah's life, which is the fire at Mount Carmel, which sounds delicious. If you want to hear me, uh, if you want to hear me preach on that, go to the wayback machine on our website, YouTube site, Facebook site and it's entitled Elijah sending fire to the rain. We're looking at these other ones right here. In my first sermon, uh, we started at the beginning of chapter 17. In chapter 17, um, it's already been established that the northern kingdom's king Ahab, who did not come to whale, had done more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the other kings before him combined. That the sins of his father Omri, they seemed like a small thing to him. And that's something, right? You know, you look at all the sins of the people past, and you're like, that's nothing compared to what I'm about to do. At the beginning of chapter 17, down from the mountain, King Ahab thinks he has everything fine, he is sinning in the eyes of the Lord, he's leading the people to sin in the eyes of the Lord, then all of a sudden a prophet comes down. He's a wild man. We have a description of him. He wears garments made out of hair. Normally people wore those if they were mourning. He just wore them because he was, he was a mountain man. Yeah, um, place where he is from, uh, uh, Tishbe, uh, was a mountainous region. He was a strong man. He was, he was a guy he did not want to be on the other side of. And he was a man who feared God more than he feared men. The exact kind of person a guy like King Ahab did not like. Elijah confronts him. He tells him, It will not rain until I give the word. Just a refresher on that, Elijah did not hear from from the Lord that it would not rain. He read in the law of God that when the people turned away, God would shut up the heavens. So he prayed earnestly until it wouldn't. Um, God hears Elijah's prayer. He shuts up the heavens. It does not rain for three and a half years. Then God. God speaks to Elijah and tells him to leave. He is a prophet without honor. Last time I preached and I focused on Elijah's obedience, which there's so much to talk about there, which is good because the king—it's good that Elijah was obedient to God because the king wanted him dead, the king's wife wanted him dead, all of Israel wanted him, all of Israel wanted him dead. I'm sure stable boys wanted him dead. Everybody wants this dude dead, and he listens to God's word and he is faithful to that and. God's people, because God's people who are called by his name will not humble themselves. They will not pray and turn from their wicked ways. So God will not heal their land. We like that verse because we like that part of the verse. That he will heal our land. You know what happens before that verse in Chronicles? He says, if I send, if I send the drought, if I send calamity, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. This is, he lives in a land where people will not humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, so they will not experience healing in their land until chapter 18, until they turn away from the Bial worship that had so consumed them. Elijah, in the meantime, is a prophet without honor in his home nation. They're, you know it's funny. So I wrote this on. I, I write. I write out my sermon. I do. I do my research throughout the week, but I actually write it out on Thursday. So I didn't know we were doing the on Days of Elijah. So what I have in my notes. Good job, Josh. By the way, uh, what I have in my notes is that there was a. There used to be a popular song we used to we used to sing in churches about Elijah. I put it here in the olden times in the early two thousands. <laughs> And we sang it today. Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun, at the trumpet call. But what were the days of Elijah like? You know, in my first sermon, I went into very I went into detail about the days of Elijah. It is a time of wickedness. Today I won't go into much, that much detail, but suffice it to say, it is a wicked time. Evil of all sorts are not just simply tolerated, they are celebrated. Let me say that again. Evil of all sorts is not tolerated, it is celebrated and encouraged. Israel gets so bad, they sacrifice their own children. I want you to get grasped that. They would not follow God, so they re- they sow the wind and they reap the world wind. God's people tolerate And welcome and celebrate all kinds of sin. They are indifferent to righteousness. When Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, he has to rebuild the article, the the altar. They just didn't use it. They didn't destroy the altar. They just didn't use it until it fell into disrepair. They had to rebuild it. You know what's crazy about the times of Elijah, the days of Elijah, is that they didn't stop worshiping Yahweh you think they would, right? Because they're worshiping all these other gods. No, they saw Yahweh as just simply the god you pray to when things get real bad. But He's not the one who gives you the rain day to day. That's Baal. So you've got to pray to Baal and Asherah in order to have the rain. And then when things get real bad, or somebody conquers us, we have a nation at our door. Then we pray, and we sacrifice to Yahweh. And because it hasn't happened in a while, who cares? That's so much maybe like our lives. Day to day, we don't pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. We're like, I'm fine there. When something bad happens, then I'll bother. Then, then I'll beseech. Then I will prevail upon the throne of God. There is a false spirituality in the land. There's a false spirituality. They have taken all the world's ideas, the people around them, and have shoved it into this. If you want to know what the days of Elijah are truly like, all I, tell, all I would suggest you to do is turn on the news when you're done from here, when you're gone from here. Open up a Twitter account and follow a few religious uh, professionals, and you will know what the days of Elijah were like. How do you live in the days of Elijah? So, how are God's faithful supposed to live in the days of Elijah? Well, the song we sang today tells us: declare the word of the Lord. Amen. C.S. Lewis is talking about the dangers of the atomic age. I talked about this, actually, at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, which I'm glad I did. Um, he, uh, he wrote an essay on living in the atomic age, because people are like, how do we survive? How do we live in such an evil time when you can destroy the world with atomic bombs? And he said, the same way you would have lived in medieval Europe when every year the, plagues, the plague came by. We needed to hear that, didn't we? <laughs> right? That, that the grass will be green again this is just like every age of mankind, including that, at not the end. You declare the word of the Lord. De- de- the call is the same. Declare the word of the Lord. Declare the word of the Lord. Fear God more than you fear men. It means to have courage in a land of cowards, which is not fun, and it doesn't make you popular. Elijah would not have made times man of the year. He would not have made any list of most influential people in Israel. Fortunately, we have a lot of pastors who do many of these things. Why? Because when they, get, when, when they are on the news programs and, they're, and the nails are put to them, do you call them sinners? They say, well, I don't know. I don't know. What, well, do you think it's wrong? Do you need Jesus to go to heaven? I don't know. Give us some men and women who know. Pastor Steve Lawson said that. Give us some men and women who know, who can preach, who can declare the word of the Lord, to seek after the better things than to go to the same empty wells everybody else does, to humble ourselves and to pray and to turn from our wicked ways. Boldness to reject the yeast of the Pharisees. Today, we, uh, in our Sunday school, we went over a, Elijah. Not Elijah, um, Ezra. What a lot of mean names, right? Ezra, Ezra. And um, Ezra, when he found out the people had sinned, he tore his clothes, he ripped out his beard, he ripped out his hair. Not because of the sin around him, not because of the sin of Babylon. Of course, they are sinners. But no, God's remnant was sinning. And he knew you had to take the plank out of your own eye before you could take the speck out of your brother's eye. Where is the sorrow over sin? In our camp. And it's a boldness to reject the yeast of the Pharisees. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Because God is still raising up Elijah's. Last time I preached, I said that hard times produce strong people, but wicked times produce powerful prophets. All of you have a prophetic ministry. All of you have a prophetic ministry. Not what you're thinking, though. I mean, I don't mean like Elijah, you're going to say, if I'd be a man of the world, man of God, and all of a sudden, fire comes out from heaven, roasts 50 people, or things like that. I don't mean they're all going to be future tellers. That's one small part of prophetic ministry in the Bible, is telling the future, as God gives it to you, of course. And FYI, prophets of God are never wrong for any reason. There's no mix-ups, because God doesn't lie. But the main purpose of a prophet was to declare the word of the Lord, to tell people what does God expect of you? What is the way of salvation? It's to point out sin, to be grieved over sin, and to proclaim the acceptable time of the Lord's favor. Favor. And all of us have a more powerful ministry than Elijah. See John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Jesus said, "There is none born of woman who is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he." And he said that John operated in the spirit and power of Elijah. But you, at least in the kingdom of God, is greater than he. You know why? Because you have a better message. It's not simply when it's going to rain, when it's not going to rain. But it is life from death. Oh, do we have a responsibility, folks. Do we have a responsibility to be a prophetic word in this culture that Jesus Christ died for sinners of who I am the worst be reconciled to God. The t- title of today's sermon, Bread in the Land of No East, it really comes from Jesus's, Jesus' um, message about Elijah and what had happened in this time. In the Luke passage we read this morning, Elijah was a prophet, but he was a prophet without honor in his home country. In Matthew 16, actually in Luke here, Jesus is in his hometown, he can't perform any miracles. Many people are grumbling, and they're saying, um, isn't, this, isn't this the son of the carpenter? A lot of um, commentaries I've read, um, they, they say that what they were implying, they were questioning Jesus' legitimacy as when he was conceived, when Mary and Joseph got married. I mean, in, in the worst way you can imagine. I mean, like, a- absolutely And uh, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't trust that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. And Jesus doesn't perform many miracles. He's unable to perform many miracles. And he starts preaching about a prophet without honor. And he says, Elijah was a prophet without honor in all of Israel. Elijah was um, was a prophet, but he was a prophet without honor in his home country. Matthew 16, Jesus tells the disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. This is why Elijah does not perform miracles in Israel during this time, according to Jesus. Isn't that important? When you read something in the Old Testament, see if somebody mentions it in the New Testament, because Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's your most sure way of knowing what the Old Testament Scripture says. If they mention the New Testament, of course, mentioned by Christ. Of course, they don't get what Jesus is talking about when he tells them to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. He thinks that he's mad because they didn't bring bread. Which I think is just you know funny because Jesus wasn't grumpy like that, but they're like, "We're well, sorry we didn't bring bread, Jesus." Because <laughs> he tells them, they, they tell him, you know, we, we did bring bread. Sorry, we we're on the strip and we didn't bring bread. And he says, "Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." And they're like, oh, "He's really taking this personally." <laughs> and Jesus hears them. He knows their thoughts, and he tells them, "No." I mean, you can just imagine how frustrated he must be, because, you know, he's been he's, he's ministering them for a long time, and they're thinking he's talking about bread. He's like, remember, I, 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 I multiplied the loaves and the fish, like, a few days ago. Why are you... No, the teachings. The te- I, I, Jesus has to do that with me sometimes, right? He can't be settled. Sometimes he needs to be like, this is what I'm saying. Stop trying to make this all metaphysical. No, no, this is what I'm saying right here. The teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This can be standard out to all false teaching. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And this is how the devil destroys entire denominations. It's just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit in there. Just a little bit of false teaching that is completely accepted, and all of a sudden it works its way through the entire dough to the point where Elijah, God does not have Elijah perform a miracle in Israel. So think about that. In other words... There were many widows who could have used that miracle, but they didn't because they would not repent and turn from their wicked ways. They were a land of yeast. In the in the teachings of Bial and all false and all false gods began with the king. And they have now worked their way throughout all of Israel. In the Passover, yeast represents sin. In traditional Jewish Passovers, they will get rid of every little bit of yeast from their house. And the last little bit, the father gets to throw into the fire. Israel is a land that is full of yeast. So Elijah goes to another land to get bread without yeast. Obviously not literally, but obviously figuratively. Since God sends Elijah to Zarephath to get bread from the widow, I thought it would be fun to label each of my subpoints after a different type of bread. So, point one, our will and God's will, that's angel food. Point number two, the taste of desperation, that's sourdough. And three is our daily bread in Jara. We're going to be going verse by verse through um, what Becca had read today, starting in verse eight. So, my first, my first point right here, God's will and ours will, uh, I call it angel bread. And, You're probably thinking, wait, angel food is not bread, it's cake. Well, it's just an illustration, and it's mine, so I get to break through this. (laughs) In the first three verses, we have a very interesting situation. I'm going to read them for you again. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in vessel that I may drink. And, she, and as, she, as she was going to bring it, he called to her, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. You know what's interesting in this? God tells Elijah that he had commanded a widow in Zarephath to feed him, but the widow doesn't know anything about it. This brings up a very very interesting thing that we deal with. Where does... how does... God's will interact with my will. If God is sovereign, how do I have free will? Um, once again, this brings a very, very um, interesting point. Excellent idea. How does free? How does human free will interact with God's sovereignty? God commands the widow to feed Elijah, and she knew nothing about it. It makes me think of angel food. It makes me think of angel food, because I'm not a baker. And I've made some cakes. I've never made angel food. So I don't understand how you can use the same ingredients, and instead of getting something dense and chocolatey, you can get something light, airy, and right. To me, it's like almost like magic, right? How do you do that? So I don't understand it, but I like it. I don't understand the exact <laughs> interplay between God's will and my will, God's sovereignty and human-free will, but I love it. I love it. So, what do we do with human responsibility and God's sovereignty? A young woman asked the great preacher Charles Spurgeon if it was possible to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Young woman said, "He, you don't reconcile friends." I like that. You don't Amen. reconcile friends. We're so worried about that and all the interplay. All I know is from the Scripture. I know two things: God is sovereign. Amen the electrons and neutrons of an atom stay separate because of his word. The atoms, oceans, nebula, all things in creation are upheld by his word. He holds the times and our future in his hands. He sits in heaven, and he does as he pleases, as the psalmist said, but that mankind, human beings, men and women, are completely responsible for our own decisions. These are two things that are, these, these are two glorious truths from the Scriptures that cannot be contradicted. You may be familiar with the terms Arminianism and Calvinism, I don't know if you are or not. I am not going to solve that for you today. The fact of the matter is, I don't believe anybody completely knows the interplay between God's will and, human, and mankind's will. All I just know is these two glorious truths from the Scripture: God is sovereign, and human are, humans are responsible for their own decisions. And I agree with I agree with Charles Virgin. These two are not enemies; they are not they are not estranged relatives, but they are friends. God's sovereignty God is sovereign over Adam's oceans and you and me. He holds the nations and the times in His hands. Our God is in heaven; He does as He pleases. And human beings are responsible for their own decisions. We cannot blame our bad behavior, our sins, on God. We own it. We own our bad decisions, but then He buys us with His blood. Fantastic. It's amazing. It's a mystery. So in this first part right here, it's angel food. I don't fully understand it. It's just wonderful and glorious. That woman, she knew nothing about it, but she was still blessed. She was still blessed by God's sovereignty. You know, the faith. The faith of Elijah here. God tells Elijah that, he has, that he, has a, he has commanded a widow to feed him. Widows in Elijah's time, they were destitute. They only have what their family gave them. They would, they would not be able to work a job. So the idea that a widow, in the middle of a drought, who has a child and a household, is going to feed him, may seem crazy, unless you just got done being fed twice a day by McRavens. (laughs) It might seem crazy if you hadn't gone through a season of being fed by filthy carrying birds twice a day. In your life, the adventure God has called you to isn't always going to make sense. It's not always going to make sense. And time to time, every part in our life we come to times, right? Where we're like, God, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen with my future? I feel bad if you feel that way. That's human. It's just our anxieties in our life. What I want you to do is I want you to remember that God who fed you when you were being fed by ravens will feed you by will. Remember what God has done in the past. Remember how God had lifted you out of worse circumstances, or similar circumstances, or some other circumstance, because it's the same God who's going to help you now. I think in my life, um, my mother had cancer twice when I was growing up. God healed her twice. My father died of cancer, my grandparents died of cancer. So when something comes up, I remember the same God who healed my mom is the same God who is going to help me in this. And I don't know exactly how it's going to work. I just know it's going to be for my good and His glory. Yes. And I know on the other side of it, I'm going to be better. Or I can choose to be bitter, but I choose to be better. I choose to be blessed instead of cursed. Amen. Amen. I said at the introduction that Elijah was a wanted man. God had him travel through Israel to get to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. So once again, everybody wants Elijah dead. In fact, Ahab's looking for prophets, getting them killed. His aid actually saves some of them. And when his aid, when, when, when Elijah appears to his aid, his aide is like freaking out, because he's like, what have I done that was so bad? Because if I tell Ahab, you're here, and you're not here, he's going to kill me! Land is such wickedness, right? Everybody's out to get, get Elijah, and God's like, why don't you go for the enemy's land? Why don't you go through Israel to get to Zarephath? And you know something? Zarephath wasn't a land of protection. It was worse than Israel. Because Zarephath in Sidon is the hot seat, it is the regional leader in Baal worship. You remember Ahab's wife Jezebel? Can you guess where her father rules? Zarephath. But you know, you just were fed by ravens, right? so you know that God's going to protect you in this certain Some of you who are facing dire situations, I want you to know, the same God who saw you through others will see you through this, and you will be better on the other side. I make a lot of Elijah's obedience, which, there's a lot to be said. I could just talk about that this entire series, Elijah's obedience. God didn't want Elijah's understanding. He wanted his obedience. Elijah wasn't put on this earth to get it. He was put on this earth to do what God had said. Israel is a land of yeast, and a people who are so who are so whole, they don't understand that they've been dying of starvation long before Elijah prayed for their rain to stop. It's kind of a hard thing, maybe in America. So many people, they don't realize that they're hungry, that they're starving to death. You know, there's a point when you're starving, that you don't feel hungry. Mm -hmm. Your digestion shuts down, you don't realize you're dying. They didn't realize that they were spiritually so malnourished that they were dying. But the widow who grew up all of her life with the Baals, she has seen how inadequate they are. She gathered up the last of what she had, and Baal would not help her out. Her and her son, after they're done eating this, no more food, they die. She has given up hope. All she has is a little time and a jar of flour and a bottle of oil. What can she give? Well, she can give what she has. She doesn't understand. But like Elijah, she didn't need to understand. She does as the Lord has commanded her. And so will my second point here in verses 11 through 13 is the taste of desperation, and this one is sourdough. Um, I like sourdough, so don't think uh, this is like a knock on sourdough. Sourdough tastes really good on meat sandwiches, the sourness of it. Yeah. You know what it doesn't taste great on? is peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if I this story, it's all we had in the house. And I wanted a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He's like, are you eating? Peanut butter and jelly and sourdough? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, how does that taste? It looks awful. (laughs) It was not made for peanut butter and jelly. The sour taste of it does not work well, does not pair well. The widow has tasted bitterness in her life, and that many of us have as well. For her, it was losing a spouse and being destitute with only a little flour and a little oil. There are many types of desperation. Maybe we're most familiar with financial desperation. There's times in our life where, you know, we don't know how we're going to pay all the bills, we don't, I don't know if anybody's been in this situation, maybe you have, where you didn't know where the next meal was coming from. I remember growing up, and me, and my, me and my siblings, we would walk around town trying to find a dollar so that we could buy a loaf of bread, so that we could have lunch that day. So I know, I know what desperation tastes like, I that you know desperation it is bitter, anybody who has never wants to go back to that again. But there's other types of desperation, too. How about addiction? The person who's gone through the 12-step program many times, only to relapse. And that bitter taste of desperation, like they could just have this chain broken. The, the desperation of a family member, a spouse, a child, who is wayward, and you've been praying and praying to the point where it feels like there's blisters on your heart, Everyone who's ever tasted desperation never wants to taste it again. This widow is now tasting it for the second time, in that she has no hope left for her and her son. Who was this widow? We know very little about her, but what we do know is enough. She is a pagan. She is not a convert in Zarephath. She's not a convert to Judaism in Zarephath. She is a pagan, because she says to the prophet, the Lord your God, as surely as the Lord your God. Not our God, not my God, lives. The Lord, your God, lives. Not mine, not ours, yours. We know that she has been acquainted with loss. Her husband died, and that is sad enough. Now, taking into consideration that she has no way to support her and her family, other than what was in the dowry, and that is ran out, she also knows responsibility. She has a son. Her hope is all but dead, and she figures soon her, and her son will be too. Oftentimes, in our most desperate circumstances, God asks of us the greatest faith. Just something for this widow, because she had no faith. But God requires that of her, because in our weakness He is strong. I can't imagine she had that. She had such a. I can just imagine she had such a hard time in her life before. She tells the prophet that she is going to make a little bread for her and her son, and they will die because there is nothing left. Elijah knows God's command, however, and tells her that first she needs to make him a small cake. I don't don't know about you, but in my life, when I have had nothing to give, what's left seems insurmountable. It might as well be everything. But in my weakness, God is strong. In my weakness, at my my lowest points are the times where God has worked the greatest amount. He likes using people at their weakest, so there can be no doubt where the power and the sustenance for life comes from. My last point here is our daily bread. This is in Jara, from verses 14 through 16. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did, as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had, that, that was spoken by Elijah. In the ancient Near East, Bread is a staple food. You know, for us in our diet, bread is the vehicle that brings meat to our mouth. Uh, meat is really our staple food. We build. It's like, what are we having? I mean, you parents, some days just do this to your kids. They're like, what are we going to have for? What are we going to have for supper? You're like rye bread. <laughs> see if they're see if they're excited. Um, their main staple was bread. So when we look at this when Jesus tells us, "Give us this day, bread. Give us this day our daily bread, our daily sustenance." When we read that as a believer, we realize that that is the food for our day. This flour and the oil. What happens with the flour and the oil is a miracle. It doesn't run out. Nor though is it like the miracle of Jesus with the loaves and the fish. There is not an abundance either. The people in the region do not eat just her and her household. It is their daily bread. There is a prayer that goes something like this. God, don't give me too much. Least I rely on it too heavy. Nor give me too little, so I don't have enough to share. But give me just enough. Elijah, the widow, and her family had enough. You know, bread and Jesus are intertwined. A lot in the Gospels. A lot of references to Jesus and bread. Um, For this purpose, too. Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, literally translates as house of bread. Jesus, when he is tempted by Satan in the desert, Satan tells him, these stones, make them into bread. And Jesus tells him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Um, In the Lord's Prayer, he instructs us to give us this day our daily bread. Jesus also said that he was the bread of life. When the Israelites were in the desert, they had no food. They were wondering where their next meal was coming from, so God made it rain bread from heaven. It was called manna. Manna was amazing. It was safe. And when you're in a foreign land, food that, finding food that's actually safe is a miracle. It's a, it's, it's a blessing. But they were giving it a greater blessing, a greater miracle, because they were giving safe food coming down from heaven. And do you have many people, like in wars, die just from eating the wrong thing? More people than die from the bullet or the gun. So they were given this miracle, safe food. But also, it's all they needed. They would eat manna, and that was all the nutrients they needed for their life. And if you remember the story, they weren't satisfied with it. They asked God for meat, and they said it was better for us to be in Egypt. Sometimes we look at our former life a little too fondly. Like, I'll hear people's testimony, and they're like, Oh, I had everything. Everything was going great. I was like, man, rose-colored glasses, right? No, you weren't. You were dying in your transgressions and sins. I don't care if you were CEO of Fortune 500 company, you were so poor." Remember that in the testimony. Because God hears us talking about our, our, our chains so fondly, and he might decide to give us meat that we're asking for. This manna from heaven, it was everything they needed. It was, a bread, it was the bread of life. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When the Israelites in the in the desert, they ate manna. But now, as believers, we metaphorically eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It was like unlike any other food you could find. It was safe. It filled you up, it was enough. Somehow they got all the nutri- nutri- nutrients that the body needs from this. And Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He is all that they need. So I put on here Jesus' is, I put on here on this one in Jara. And there's a reason for that. I hope you I hope you were blessed by our missionaries last week, the Olsons. Um, they're missionaries to Ethiopia, and Peter Olson's the one who told me this. So if it's wrong, it's wrong. Anyway, um, he's he's absolutely right. Translating the Bible into the language of those who are in Ethiopia became a little bit of a challenge because Ethiopia, you have a staple food called injara. and that's what's up up on the screen right here. I've eaten injara. I call it. A, I'd say it tastes like a like a sour taco shell. Um, I think it's awesome. It's spongy. You can use it to grip things, and that's what they use. And um, they have a saying in Ethiopia that you have not eaten today unless you've eaten in jar of it. So the idea of it is, like, maybe you snack, but you didn't have a meal. You are not satisfied unless you've eaten in jar. So they're translating in the New Testament, and they get to this part where it says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And they have a word, they have a word for bread. Like, Western bread made out of wheat, so on and so forth. But they decided, they purposely decided, to put in the word injara. You know why? Because you have not eaten today until you have been satisfied by Jesus Christ. He is the injara of life. You may, have, you may have done many things today, you may have eaten many things. You may have all these pursuits, but you have not been satisfied until you've had Christ today. You've not eaten unless you you've not eaten today unless you've had Christ. There's, this is the great shame of Israel. They were starving physically for three and a half years, but they have been starving spiritually for much, much longer. Worship team, would you please come up at this time? If I had glasses today that could see into your soul, how many of you would look emaciated on the verge of starvation? You don't know when the last time you really... think like you're like, okay, I pray every day, but you don't connect with Jesus. He feels so distant. When we talk about prayer, we're not talking about words, we're talking about a connection of a soul with the soul, our spirit with his Holy Spirit. Have you had Christ today? How many of you, if I had those spiritual glasses on, would look like you're sticking bones? Because you've filled up on so many things that don't don't satisfy, that you have no more room for Jesus Christ. I was told in the 80s that Hummingbird feeders changed a bit. That people were worried about hummingbirds getting obese, which is weird. <laughs> so, well meaning people are like, oh no, these little things are going to get diabetes because all they eat is sugar. So, let's have diet bird feeders. That sounds great, right? So, it'll be, you know, it'll seem, it'll seem like something that's going to fill them up, sustain them, and it'll fill up their bellies, and it's sweet to the taste, but it has no calories in it. Hummingbirds burn a terrific amount of calories for their little bodies. So they would fill up on this, they'd get a belly full of this nectar, and then they would fall over dead by midday because they had nothing in their system. How many of us would fill up on the world's philosophies? we fill up on all the concerns of this world, and then we're wondering why we have nothing left when tragedy strikes. And that was Israel. They had nothing to sustain them through the spiritual drought. Of course, they have nothing to sustain them through the physical drought. You long for the faith you had when you began your walk. I'll hear this so many times. with so many believers who've been believers for many years, and what they mean is that initial excitement when they first became Christians. That baby Christian enthusiasm. Maybe you don't have the same kind of fanatical enthusiasm, but your faith should be deeper and more substantive. It should take you through things you never thought you could get through before. Because you've been filled with Christ. You look inside now and you wonder why you're so faint and weak. Maybe because you haven't had Christ in a long time. So, can I ask you today, have you eaten? Worship team, you're going to lead us in our final song. Then we're going to have the kids come up here. We're going to pray over them, the teenagers, sorry. I know I shouldn't do that, but yeah, teenagers will have you come up and we're going to pray over you for camp. But just for this next song, have you eaten today?